Hi everyone, I'm Gary Knoll. Nice to have you with us today. Our first study comes from the University of Oslo in Norway. It's about a simple vitamin, vitamin B3. It's kind of the overlooked vitamin. We know about vitamin B1, and B2, and B6, and 12, and folic acid. No one talks about B3. But a form of vitamin B3 in AD plus helps people who have a specific kind of disorder. It's a genetic disorder. This was published in Movement Disorders. And it found when you took vitamin B3, you improved in motor coordination and eye movement among this ataxia group of patients. And the genetic disorder is characterized by neurodegeneration, poor immune function, and increased risk of developing cancer and premature aging. Quite simply, most of the individuals lose their ability to walk on their own by the age of 10. So, good news, because it enhances the mitochondria. And that's very, very important. We just need more of NAD as we age. It's one of the most important, I would say it's in the top five nutrients, along with resveratrol and L-carnosine, when it comes to slowing down the aging process. So, just want to share that with you, because it's good new science. Now, another thing that's good from Loma Linda University is eating just one food can strengthen the brainwave frequencies. Yes, eating nuts on a regular basis strengthens your brainwave frequency associated with cognition, healing, learning, memory, and other key brain functions. In the study, researchers found that some nuts stimulated some brain frequencies more than others. For example, number one, pistachios. Now, I'm not talking about the dry, roasted, and salted pistachios, just raw pistachios produce the greatest gamma wave response, which is critical for enhancing cognitive processing, information retention, learning, perception, and rapid eye movement during sleep. Peanuts, which were actually legumes, but were part of the study, produced the highest delta response, which is associated with healthy immunity, natural healing, and deep sleep. So I think this is very important. Now, of course, walnuts are very good also. In fact, of all the different nuts, and they tested six different nuts, all of them were high in beneficial antioxidants, with walnuts containing the highest antioxidant concentration of all. So if you want to make sure you're getting the ORAC factor, and the ORAC is your total amount of antioxidants to trap the free radicals, which are very important, a tablespoon of walnut or walnut butter every day would be really good for you. But a bunch of pistachios really helps your brain. Now, all nuts, all nuts protect your heart, fight cancer, reduce inflammation, and slow the aging process. They give you the good oils, the good fats. So, something good, something natural, that, and there's good science behind it, by the way. So, but don't eat the, uh, don't eat the fried nuts. They're not good. And a lot of people buy them. So, the, the best nuts are almonds, cashews, peanuts, pecans, pistachios, and walnuts. All right?
have those some form every day. Now from Osaka University and Jaikia University School of Medicine, both in Japan, warming up before exercise really does improve performance. If you've ever been to a track meet, and I've been to over 500, warming up our muscles before engaging in physical exercise has always been important. But the science behind this routine practice has remained somewhat mysterious. Japanese researchers are now shedding light on the intricacies of muscle warm-up and its potential benefits for various populations. Muscles, whether in our hearts or throughout our bodies, contract in response to electrical signals from our nervous system. The contraction is made possible by specific proteins within the muscle cells that enable us to move. Scientists at Osaka University and Jaikita University had previously explored how temperature affects the contraction of cardiac muscles, the muscles responsible for the heart's pumping action. They found that the heart can efficiently contract within the body's normal temperature range. Their investigation revealed a fascinating discovery. Certain proteins within the muscle cells act as temperature sensors, and heating affects skeletal and cardiac muscle contractions differently. Our findings point to the differences in temperature, sensitivity of proteins responsible for contraction in skeletal and cardiac muscles. That's what it says. Basically, the skeletal muscle that makes us move, the body move, is more sensitive to heat than the heart. This means that when we warm up our bodies, skeletal muscles respond more quickly to the increase in temperature than the heart does. During warm-up exercise, even slight warming due to light improvement can safely improve efficiency of skeletal muscles. As a result, these muscles can conserve energy and rest when not in use, contributing to enhanced exercise performance. Simple. Just maybe a little too scientific for some people to fully appreciate, but it just means that take your time warming up. Stretch. Yoga is a great way to get warm. Uh, walking slowly and then slowly increasing after five minutes. Take about five minutes. Stretch your muscles gently, slowly, and your heart's benefiting from all that. You just don't go out and start exercising. All right? From Brown University comes a study about practicing mindfulness once again. We keep sharing this information from different studies, all leading to the same conclusion. It can help people make heart-healthy eating choices. Practicing mindfulness focused on healthy eating can be good for the heart because it improves self-awareness and helps people stick to a heart-healthy diet. When people who had elevated blood pressure participated in an eight-week mindfulness-based blood pressure reduction program for the study, they significantly improved their scores of self-awareness and adherence to a heart-healthy diet compared to a control group. And the results were published in the Journal of the American Medical Association. I tried this in my latest clinical study using a group of individuals who most had claimed that they were on healthy diets 
They all came from this radio audience, so I'm assuming if people listen to this radio program for any period of time, they're going to make, not all, I'm not looking for people to, you know, look for a perfect diet or perfect health, but they're more conscious, they're more mindful that what they eat is going to have an impact sooner or later. But still, when you're in an environment, and this was on campus in an environment for two weeks, and then we followed it up every week for six months, six months, with a two-hour lecture every Sunday night, Luann and myself talking with people. It really made a difference, giving them additional support, answering questions. But the mindful meditation was done every single day. In fact, for two hours, they would find either in classes. Uh, we had Dr. Peter Resnick, who helped lead these classes. And before that, it was Mitchell Raven, who did a really good job. Mitchell's a very good teacher. And he's up on the best way of getting a person grounded, quiet, and focused. And uh, so we, we appreciate his input. And then Peter takes you to a whole different level. And Richard Gale also. Richard is not only a scholar in residence for the last 15 years, working as an executive producer of my show, but he also comes from a spiritual background, graduating from the uh, University of Chicago with graduate degrees, including in, um, in theology. And part of that is studying cultures where he's lived in India and Tibet and, and all around the world in, in these cultures. So he studies them, masters them, so he taught meditation each day. Talk about really cool. And he taught a class where he would bring the meditation from that country or that religion, like, uh, well, Buddhism, into a consciousness. So you got the benefit of learning meditation from different cultures and how they go about it. So it's just really wonderful experience. In any case, the more mindful you are, of your health, the more likely you are to make a healthy choice. And that's important. Because if you can be mindful about making a choice about food and beverages, then you can make a mindful choice about the quality of friendship and how important it is in honoring your friends and how being honest and faithful in your relationships and how to be conscious of other people's needs. My mother told me something I've never forgotten. She said, if you have to ask someone for help, you're asking the wrong person. Because mindful people become aware of anything that might be out of balance, they might be able to help or facilitate getting back into balance. Positive suggestions, being there for someone, being mindful, it all works together. So that's the latest on health and healing. We're going to take a break and come right back. Please stay with us. And welcome back, everyone. I'm Gary Knoll. I was going to spend all of the rest of the program talking about the economy and how it impacts us and who's not being honest. But then this morning, we came across a... Uh, a bunch of information that shows us that the official government statistics on the percentage of debt, meaning how much does, how much do we owe the world on all levels, the government, 
industry, states, cities, the person with credit card and uh, student loans, mortgages, households. Against against that is our income, and the government has been saying it's a it's about a hundred and thirty percent. No, it's not. It's over seven hundred and forty percent, and that's down from eight hundred and twenty percent just a year ago. So I'm revising a lot of what I was going to share with you based upon new and high quality, and it took us hours to verify it all. So I'm going to set aside Tuesday evening's Progressive Commentary Hour to do a full hour on just understand the the 10 billion pound boulder that's in the room that no one is willing to discuss. How far debt how far are we on debt? What can we do about it individually and collectively, except keep increasing it as if we're really good, we're exceptional. We have all these economists. They've all been wrong, except maybe a handful. And uh, so that will be Tuesday's Progressive Commentary Hour in the entire hour. And I'm going to set time aside to answer your questions on that as well. So you want to tune in on Tuesday because of this new information. Instead, I'm going to share some current information that shows you that if you did not get vaccinated, let's say because you looked at the science and you didn't see the science that proved that at 18 years old, an athlete, that you were susceptible to dying of COVID. It was 0.3%. A common cold or flu is going to kill more people. Or a young child or a baby so virtually all the science, when I say all the science, I mean all the legitimate science showed that we did not have a pandemic, we did not have an epidemic, except of false statistics and false positive testing with PCR test. But it was enough to give those in power an opportunity to see how far they could go in controlling us. What an unusual experiment, even if they didn't anticipate it to be an experiment, in mass psychosis. So if they're able to control our lives through fear and punishment and ridicule and demeanment, imagine how many more times that'll work. Well, now we have the results, and they're overwhelming. We were right about every single thing we shared, and they were wrong. Howard Stern was wrong, but you haven't heard him apologize. He won't, his ego won't allow him. Nor any of the late-night pundits, or Rachel Maddow, no one who condemned you for not being vaccinated, John uh, Lemon guy who used to be on CNN, they have their views, and they have a right to their views, but they don't have a right to control the truth and subvert it. I'll give you some examples. This is in the British Medical Journal today. Investigation raises concerns over a cozy relationship between the FDA and Moderna. Now remember, if you watch the film, um, in fact, two separate films I dealt with this. One was uh, the Science for Hire, which is brand new. And the other one was years ago, and it was Prescription for Disaster, and then the War on Health. I showed you from people on the inside, you go to work from, let's say, Pfizer or, or uh, oh, any of the major companies, 
and you go into the FDA or CDC or some other place, you take up a, a policymaking position, seems like coincidentally all the policies favor the company you came from, and then you go back into the company with a bonus, and then back in. It's just never-ending revolving door. And we've been telling you that for a long time. So how can you trust anything coming from an agency that has been completely captured by special interest? Quote, an investigation published by the British Medical Journal raises concerns about a revolving door culture between the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, and Moderna after two regulators who held oversight roles for COVID vaccines went to work for the company. During the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, Doran Fink served on the FDA's senior leadership team for COVID vaccine review and policy activities and took part in the ultimate decision to license the Pfizer-Moderna vaccines, explains Peter Dalshe, senior editor at the British Medical Journal. Fink's LinkedIn profile states that he finished his role at the FDA December 2022. Two months later, he was working at Moderna, heading the Translational Medicine and Early Clinical Development Program in Infectious Diseases. Similarly to Fink, Jaya Kajwami started at the FDA in its Center for Biologic Evaluation and Research in March 2020 and was responsible for evaluating whether the clinical data from Moderna's COVID vaccine met regulatory standards for approval. Licensure was granted at the end of January 2022. Goswani's LinkedIn profile states that she left the FDA in June of 2022 and that same month started a new role as Director of Clinical Development and Infectious Diseases at, you guessed it, Moderna. Uh, so, now, who's telling us this? The New York Times? No. The British Medical Journal. Because at least they have the honesty and integrity to tell us what is so apparent to any of us activists, especially public health activists, who've seen this lobbying going on forever. And all these are captured agencies. In fact, according to the British Medical Journal, quote, from 2016 study published in the British Medical Journal, researchers followed 55 medical reviewers involved in drug approvals in FDA hematological oncology division over several years. Of 26 officers who left the FDA, 15 later worked for industry as consultants. So you go from being a person overseeing approval, okay, green light that drug, but there's a lot of concern. No, 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 green light it, but it hasn't really been tested. No, 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 and we didn't use real placebos. No, and now you go right into the very industry making those drugs. A separate investigation by Science Magazine in 2018 similarly reported that 11 of 16 FDA medical examiners who worked on 28 drug approvals and then left the agency for new jobs are now employed or consult for the companies they recently regulated. Well, that's just not appearance of conflict of interest. That's gross conflict of interest. And by the way, both Goswami and Fink did not respond to requests for an interview, and the FDA instructed the British Medical Journal to file Freedom of Information Act request for information. End quote. Now, that's just one thing. Now, why? I gave you something just now that shows you the broad picture because it's in every industry. It's in the 
it's in the Justice Department. Where does the former Attorney General under uh, Obama go? He goes to work for the White Glove Law Firm, the largest in the United States. I see. Hmm. And how many examples do we have of cases they did not take on? Hundreds. And every agency, the nuclear regulatory agencies, every agency of government, the top policymakers, the technocrats, they go from one industry to another, but always are obedient to ultimately going to pay their paychecks. I'll tell you a little story. This goes back to the 1990s, and I was in Washington, D.C. doing a lecture for a sister station I was on down there, K- K- uh, PFW. I held their uh, show at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, dead time. Nobody listened to the radio at 3 o'clock, but I had the 36,000 quarter-hour listeners, consistent. And we raised the most money in the history of the station. And I was doing a lecture to raise money for the station. They had good people. They had good management. Good program director. And uh, I was doing this lecture at this huge building. I don't know if it was a civic center, but it was so big it had four gigantic screens showing a movie of mine. And it was packed. And afterwards, I always stop and take questions. And uh, a guy came over to me, but I kept seeing him when it was his turn. He'd go back to the back. And finally, after two hours, there was no one left. And he said, I just wanted to talk to you in private. I said, fine. He said, I work in the Valley of the Beast. I'll say more than that. But when you were talking about how corrupt the government is, you were off by about 99%. They're 100% corrupt. I said, well, then why do you still work for him? He shrugged his shoulders. He, and he said, you know, well, I got four kids, uh, three of them are in college, and it pays well. I just want to let you know, keep hitting them because sooner or later people will wake up. Well, they haven't awakened yet. We still have the same agency, still corrupt, bigger, worse than ever before, and we're just trying to expose those excesses now. And it doesn't matter who's in power, Democrat or Republican, is irrelevant. The politi- That's what people don't understand. We no longer have true liberals in power, nor true conservatives in power. We have these neocons. I'll give you some examples of that in a few moments. So in any case, just understand how you've been played. Now, how about this? This is just out. Quote, a quarter of Americans say someone they know died from COVID vaccine side effects. A quarter of Americans? So that means that two weeks ago, when Dr. Jessica Rose was on her program, and she said, and this is her area of expertise, she publishes in peer-reviewed journals, she's highly respected, she said, if you remember at the end of the program, because she didn't want to talk about it, and I kept saying, please give us the numbers. How many Americans died because of the COVID vaccine? And finally she said, at least 500,000. How many were permanently injured? 1.6 million. How many suffered serious side effects? Serious side effects. 14 million. Okay. Well, then you're dealing with over 15 million seriously injured. When was the last time anyone on any network 
or 60 Minutes or Dateline, Nightline, told that story and brought some of those people on to show what happens when you trust the doctor, the pharmacist, the nurse, and the government. You trust the headlines. And you trust uh, Howard Stern. What happens when they're wrong, deadly wrong? Should they be held accountable for wrong for death, for promoting something that they either didn't choose to look into the truth or because of their political ideological biases or just so intellectually lazy they chose not to look further than their own opinion? And now people are dead or injured for life because of it. So, that's what happens. All right? That's just one. So now we're getting the truth of how bad it is. All right? And I'm just citing what good quality research has found. By the way, the latest Rasmussen report, National Television Online Survey, finds that, quote, 24% quote, of American adults say they know someone personally who died from side effects of the COVID vaccine. I know many people. I know people who, you know, um, I know people who called me and said, Gary, I, I got the vaccine because I, if I didn't, I wouldn't have worked. But now I'm having all kinds of serious side effects. Now I can't work, but I don't want to die. To the degree I can, I put them on protocols. I did a 10 and a half hour seminar on this. Many of you were on it. And then boiled it down to a five hour documentary with positive protocols that can help. Nobody has ordered it. It's like, it's like it's not important. Well, it saves lives. It's very important. We seem to be living in some form of denialism. And why? So, we had an epidemic of death and injury. Even today, even this morning, I was looking, and here's a, a 27-year-old top athlete, a top server, a surfer, going into competition. You have to be in really good shape to do that and dies of, dies of a stroke. Got the vaccines. And one of the side effects, as we've seen, is the heart, blood, and clotting, and uh, nobody wants to acknowledge it. So, just want to share this with you, and there's a new study out. This is the latest thing. Quote, a new FDA analysis finds COVID vaccines probably causes seizures in young kids. Likely vaccination in this group was harmful. Why wouldn't, um, why wouldn't they discuss this? Now, this is from Vinay Prasad, and it shows the safety, it shows the study. And the study has like 40 authors, MD, PhDs, on this study. This is a big study. And, uh, and the paper makes two claims. First, COVID vaccines with the mRNA products is linked to myocarditis in young men. We knew that. This study confirms that. But more concerningly, it finds increasing risk of seizures and convulsions in young kids. At the very time that the FDA and CDC spokespersons say, take the, get your kids vaccinated, my God, this is beyond insane at this moment. This is child abuse. And any doctor, any pediatrician, taking a healthy child, baby, youngster, and giving these vaccines should lose their license because 
It is absolutely a crime against humanity. The science is in. Now, I realize Howard Stern and others may not like science, may not read it, um, but the science is in. They're wrong. They've promoted wrong information. People on Pacific have promoted wrong information. People on local station boards, including BBI, have promoted wrong information. You're wrong. So why don't you take responsibility for being wrong? I forgot your ego never allows you to apologize for anything. Is that right? My God. What kind of poor person are you? Well, we know who you are and what kind of person you are. And that's what happens with the politics of science. Now, I'm going to read you something, verbatim. You haven't seen this anywhere. And I want to thank Craig Murray for getting this to us. I interviewed Craig about a month ago on Progressive Commentary Hour. This is the resignation letter of Craig Mockhyber, director of the New York office for the United Nations High Commissioner on Human Rights. Here's what he had to say. And this is as of uh, a couple of days ago. I'm quoting verbatim, and we've posted this so you can read it for yourself. Dear High Commissioner, this will be my last official communications to you as Director of the New York Office of High Commissioner for Human Rights. I write it of a moment of great anguish for the world, including for many of our colleagues. Once again, we are seeing a genocide unfolding before our eyes, and the organization that we serve appears powerless to stop it. As someone who has investigated human rights in Palestine since the 1980s, lived in Gaza as a UN human rights advisor in the 1990s, and carried out several human rights missions to the country before and after, this is deeply personal to me. I also worked in these holes through the genocides against the Tusis, the, uh, the uh, Muslims, the Yanzi, uh, Yazdis, and the Ruendi. In each case, when the dust settled on the horrors that had been perpetrated against defenseless civilian populations, it became painfully clear that we, he's talking about the United Nations, we had failed in our duty to meet the imperatives of prevention of mass atrocities, of protection of the vulnerable, and accountability for perpetrators. And so it has been with successive waves of murder and uh, persecution against the Palestinians throughout their entire life and here at the United Nations. High Commissioner, we are failing again. As a human rights lawyer and more than 30 years of experience in the field, I know well that the concept of genocide has often been subject to political abuse, but the current wholesale slaughter of the Palestinian people rooted in an ethno-nationalistic settler colonial ideology is a continuation of decades of their systematic persecution, and purging based entirely upon their status as Arabs and coupled with explicit statements of intent by leaders of the Israeli government and military leaves no room for doubt or debate. In Gaza, 
civilian homes, schools, churches, mosques, and medical institutions are wantingly attacked as thousands of civilians are massacred. In the West Bank, including occupied Jerusalem, homes are seized and reassigned based entirely upon race, and violent settler pogroms are accompanied by Israeli military units across the land. Apartheid rules. This is a textbook case of genocide. The European ethno-nationalist settler colonial project uh, in Palestine has entered its final phase. Toward the expedited destruction of the last remnants of indigenous Palestinian life in Palestine. What's more, the government of the United States, the United Kingdom, and much of Europe are wholly complicit in this horrific assault. Not only are these governments refusing to meet their treaty obligations to enforce or ensure respect for the Geneva Convention, but they are in fact actively arming the assault, providing economic and intelligence support, and giving political and diplomatic cover for Israel's atrocities. In concert with this, Western corporate media increasingly captured and state-adjacent are in open breach of Article 20 of the ICCPR continuously dehumanizing Palestinians to facilitate the genocide and broadcasting propaganda for war and advocacy of national, racial, and religious hatred that constitutes incitement to discrimination, hostility, and violence. U.S.-based social media companies are suppressing the voices of human rights defenders while amplifying pro-Israeli propaganda. Israel lobby, online trolls, and Congress are harassing and smearing human rights defenders, and Western universities and employers are collaborating with them to punish those who dare speak out against the atrocities. In the wake of this genocide, there must be an accounting for these actors as well, just as there was for Radio Miles Collins in Rwanda. In such circumstances, the demands on our organization, meaning the United Nations, for principled and effective action are greater than ever. But we have, we have not met the challenge. The protective enforcement power, the Security Council, has again been blocked by the United States entrenchment. The, the uh, SG is under the Secretary General under assault for the mildest of prostrations and our human rights mechanisms are under sustained uh, slanderous attack by an organized online impunity network. Decades of distraction by the illusory and largely dis disingenuous promises of Oslo have diverted the organization from its core duty to defend international law international human rights, and the charter itself. The mantra of the two-state solution has become an open joke in the quarters of the United Nations, both for its utter impossibility, in fact, and for its total failure to account for the, the inalienable human rights of the Palestinian people. The so-called court, quartet has become nothing more than a fig leaf for inaction 
and for subservience to a brutal state status quo. The United States scripted deference to agreements between the parties themselves in place of international law was always a transparent sleight of hand designed to reinforce the power of Israel over the rights of the occupied and dispossessed Palestinians. Hi, Commissioner. I came to this organization first in the 1980s because I found it in it a principled, normal-based institution that was squarely on the side of human rights, including in cases where the powerful U.S., U.K., and Europe were not on our side. While my own government, its subsidiary institutions, and much of the U.S. media are still supporting or justifying South Africa apartheid, Israeli oppression, and Central American death squads, the U.N. was standing up for the oppressed people of these lands. We had international law on our side. We had human rights on our side. We had principle on our side. Our authority was rooted in our integrity, but no more. In recent decades, key parts of the United Nations have surrendered to the power of the United States and to the fear of the Israeli lobby to abandon these principles and to retreat from international law itself. We have lost a lot in this abandonment, not least our own global credibility. But the Palestinian people have sustained the biggest losses as a result of our failures. It is stunning historic irony that the Universal Declaration of Human Rights was adopted in the same year that the Nakba was perpetrated against the Palestinian people. As we commemorate the 75th anniversary of the UDHR, we would do well to abandon the old cliché that the UDHR was born out of the atrocities that preceded it and to admit that it was born alongside one of the most atrocious genocides of the 20th century, that the destruction of Palestine, in some sense, the framers were promising human rights to everyone except the Palestinian people. And let us remember as well that the United Nations itself carries the original sin of helping to facilitate the disposition of the Palestinian people by ratifying the European settler colonial project that seized Palestine land and turned it over to the colonialists. We have much for which to atone. But the path to atonement is clear. We have much to learn from the principal stance taken in cities around the world in recent days as masses of people stand up against the genocide, even at risk of beatings and arrest. Palestinians and their allies, human rights defenders of every stripe, Christian and Muslim organizations and progressive Jewish voices saying, not in our name, are all leading the way. All we have to do is follow them. Yesterday, just a few blocks from here, New York's Grand Central Station was completely taken over by thousands of Jewish human rights defenders standing in solidarity with the Palestinian people and demanding an end to Israel's tyranny. Many ask, risking arrest in the process. In doing so, they stripped away 
in an instant the Israeli uh, propaganda point, an old anti-Semitic trope that Israel somehow represents the Jewish people. It does not. And as such, Israel is solely responsible for its crimes. On this point, it bears repeating, in spite of Israel's lobby smears, to the contrary, that criticism of Israel's human rights violations is not anti-Semitic, any more than criticism of Saudi's violations is Islamophobic. Criticism of Myanmar's violations is anti-Buddhist, or criticism of Indian violations is anti-Hindu. When they seek to silence us with smears, we must raise our voice, not lower it. I trust you will agree, High Commissioner, that this is what speaking truth to power is all about. That was part, only half of a resignation letter, and I thought it was worth reading because I know no one else will do it. And uh, in the media, the mainstream media, alternative media, I know that those who would know about it or have a copy I have the integrity to do so, Max Blumenthal, Abby Martin, etc., but only a handful. Now I want to go to a couple clips to show you how accurate that person's statements were. I want to play a couple clips in succession, and, uh, and I want you to hear people's voices. First of all, you won't hear this in the United States because few people are this articulate. But this is a the centrist pundit accidentally makes a case for Ham, Hamas on the BBC. This is what they have to say. But is a staff writer and editor at the New Statesman, and he thinks a ceasefire in Gaza is an impossible ask. I think it's true that a ceasefire only does one thing. It freezes the current conflict, as Keir Starmer says yesterday. And so whether in Ukraine or in Israel, if you're calling for a ceasefire, you're saying you're content with where things are right now. I don't think that should be the case in Ukraine. It means a fifth of the country would be under Rus Russian subjugation. And I think it's untenable to expect the Israelis not to try and remove Hamas from the Gaza Strip. The way they're going about it is um, not something that I think you can easily condone. Uh, there's clearly a tragedy, a humanitarian one, happening here. But it's impossible to call for a ceasefire. You can't have a ceasefire because that freezes thing in, things in place. Harry, do you know who else made that argument? It was Hamas in the 1990s when the PLO agreed to put down their arms. Right? So they said, we're going to put down our arms and start negotiating. Hamas said, well, if you put your arms down now, um, that's going to freeze things in place. We need to keep fighting. And the reference to Ukraine just makes the argument even more Perfect. So he says, Ukraine couldn't possibly agree to put down arms when Russia occupies a fifth of their land. Well, does Harry know how much of Palestine is occupied by the Israelis? 100%. 100%. Presumably then, he thinks it would be mad, it would be crazy to ask them to renounce violence when 100% when of their land is being subjugated, occupied by a foreign power. I think this new statesman journalist has just accidentally made Hamas's case for them. Um, not saying I agree. I think he was making a very bad argument, actually. Um, but it does seem somewhat bizarre, doesn't it? He's talking about a people who are occupied and therefore they must keep fighting. Um, and he's applying that to the Ukrainians, but not the Palestinians. 
yeah, it's far better for you, Michael, to agree with uh, a Hamas argument. Um, I should say part of the structure we live in in Britain, having these conversations, is that people can indeed go on TV and uh, celebrate the IDF as they bomb hospitals and refugee camps. And we are frequently treated to commentators on our TV screens celebrating and applauding that Israeli violence. But of course, if you were to, and I'm not doing it, if you were to um, celebrate and promote Hamas, uh, that is illegal. Um, in this land of free speech that would be support for a prescribed terrorist organization. This new statesman journalist is, is parroting exactly what Keir Starmer said yesterday, and it did genuinely shock me. I thought I was past shock uh, when it came to people like Keir Starmer um, and their colonial double standards, but it did genuinely shock me to hear the argument that we should oppose a ceasefire because that would leave Hamas's military capacities um, intact. It was a very revealing thing to say. Uh, here's what's wrong with it. First, a ceasefire would, of course, leave both sides with their military capacities intact. So the argument makes very clear that in this brutal situation, uh, the outsider's Western British position is not just that it's a horrible situation, we hope the fighting stops, but to side with Israel, to worry not at all about Israel's military capacities being left undamaged, but to worry only about Palestinian military capacities being left undamaged, even though Israel's military capacities have done infinitely more harm, killed infinitely more people um, than have Palestinian military capacities. So the worry only about Hamas is very telling. But secondly, secondly, to say we can't have a ceasefire because Israel must destroy Hamas, when Hamas operates through a network of underground tunnels, when that destruction means the blanket destruction of much life in Gaza, is to believe that there can be a military solution to an evidently political problem that a population of 2.2 million people is penned into a small area because most of them are refugees from other parts of Palestine. Those people are placed under a colonial siege where every bit of food and water they get is at the behest of their colonizer who can shut it down at will. So here we have politicians abroad saying, we don't have any immediate questions about any of that. We think first Israel needs to try to crush, impossibly to crush, the guerrilla operation of the resistance coming out of Gaza. And then maybe we can have a conversation about other things only after Israel's completely destroyed the capacity of Palestinians to resist after decades in which Israel has failed to destroy the capacity of Palestinians to resist, just like every other colonizer has, because if you wipe out an organization, another one emerges in its place because people refuse. This is something about the human spirit. People refuse to live forever on their knees. People insist on living, standing up and breathing and living free. So the position that says we oppose a ceasefire now, that says let's have a humanitarian pause so for a week we'll give people food and then we'll start bombing them again and depriving them of food and water again, that position is so deeply telling because it treats dispossessed and colonized people as objects to be managed and destroyed, not as people who have rights to the kind of freedom and dignity that we have here in Britain. One in Congress is, seems to be supporting almost all uh, $14 billion to Israel. We've already given over $330 billion. Isn't it amazing uh, that we brag about a country that is so progressive, so advanced, and yet they constantly have to need outside support. Where does that money go? Well, there's no accounting for it. Then again, they've never had to acknowledge they have nuclear weapons. So when Netanyahu says, we'll destroy Iran, well, he can. And 90 million people with it. But then Turkey's going to come into it, and Turkey has 90 million people. And Israel has six million Jews. So how are you going to, how's, how's six million Jews in Israel going to be, and those do not all support <laughs> by any means uh, a nuclear attack against Iran? Because then you've got Russia supporting Iran, China supporting Iran, Turkey supporting Iran, 
Lebanon supporting Iran. You're going to wipe out 180 million people. It's this whole idea of a scorched earth, leave no prisoners. But also this. Right now, no one has an accurate figure of how many children have been killed in the bombing. All right? Uh, of of uh, the north of Gaza. The closest estimates that I can see are over 5,000. But the argument is, and I've watched this person from the military public relations part of the Israeli army say that, well, but we got a terrorist. Do you have proof you got the terrorist? Well, we're pretty sure we got a terrorist. So you took out one Hamas and 5,000 babies, young children. And that's acceptable? Evidently, because no one in our Congress is raising this point, or our media, well, how sick are we as a nation? We're probably one of the most sick and degenerate nations ever. My God, and people stand by and allow this without question. And how many people are on the rubble? They send in one, they blow up an entire block because people had nowhere to go. People were told to go south, and then they started bombing the refugee camps in the south. One, 30 people in one family, in-laws and all, were all killed in one camp with one bomb. But they don't count. The enemy's underground, most of them. Okay, deal with Hamas, but don't kill all these people. But that, their intent is to kill them all. You think I'm kidding? In a moment, you're going to hear from Israelis, just on the street Israelis, and you'll hear them say, it's not the best audio, but you hear a woman in particular say, you'll see, hear a guy saying, a bombing is good. We should do more of it. And then we should bomb them all. And the woman's going to say, and you're going to hear her say this, if you, if you can make out what she says. But she's saying, uh, we've been too good to these people. And nobody likes them. Nobody wants them. And we're going to get rid of them. The only, the only non-terrorist in Gaza are the, uh, are the captives. Okay, it's about a couple hundred. But 2.3 million are terrorists, and therefore deserve to die? And she said, yes, all of them. So you want to get rid of all Palestinians, all Arabs? What do you want to get rid of? Everyone, all the Palestinians in Israel. Well, that's over 4 million. So you want to commit genocide. And no one says, that's not an appropriate, and do you think that's the only one? We had so many clips, hundreds of clips, and they all said the same thing. So there's a lot of hatred and racism against the Arabs and against uh, and, and against the specific Arabs, the Palestinians there. So they're just blowing up whole blocks. So they're digging, they don't have any equipment. They don't have water. People have gone now three days without water. That's uh, intentionally. No food, no water, no transportation. So people are just hunkering down in a building. Wow. And we think that that's acceptable. You know, so you know, Obama was great at this. He deserves 10 Nobel Prizes in peace. Well, I will never again mention the Nobel Prize as if it's something that a person deserves because he didn't deserve it. He deserved to be labeled as a warmonger. But he was smooth and funny, and that's all it takes. The rest of what you do is irrelevant, just like Clinton's. Let's hear now from Anna Kasparian on Israel deliberately killing civilians in a debate. It's only a minute long. You know, very you direct at, question. Do you think Israel on, no, no, no. wants 
to kill yes, innocent civilians? I do. You think Israel generally wants the... I do. What I evidence do, do you have of Be- that? The evidence is they are refusing to do special operations and instead are relying on bombing areas where they know, they know civilians are at. And then they'll turn around and say, well, Hamas is using them as, uh, as human, human shields. Shield. So if someone was so shooting so, at you... So if an armed man... Grabbed a family member of yours. Do you have kids? No, I don't. Oh, do you have? Okay, your mother. You talked about your mother. If an armed gunman grabbed your mother, had a gun to her head, okay, and he is confronted by the authorities, by law enforcement, and law enforcement, they just decide, you know what? We're not going to negotiate. We're not going to do anything. We're just going to shoot the hell out of both of them. And then they come to you and say, well, your mother, sorry, was a human shield. Would you accept that argument? That's not the question, though. Would you accept that argument? You're you're making up a a random story that, what, my mother is held captive? Hamas using Palestinians as human shields is not a justification to indiscriminately bomb the hell out of that region, knowing full well that the majority of people who are going to end up dying are not Hamas militants who are underground in the tunnels, okay? Okay, it's the... Innocent civilians who are going to lose their lives. So, and the flippant behavior that I see from the West in regard to all of those innocent people losing their lives disgusts me. Okay? Seeing people having to leave, vacate their homes, everything that they've known, being forced to leave the land that they have. That is exactly what happened to Armenians. That is exactly what happened during the genocide. And the fact that the United States is just willy-nilly providing cover for that behavior absolutely disgusts me. Okay, now our final clip is just a minute long, and it's, quote, We will bomb all hospitals. We will kill them all. We are the center of the world now, Israeli citizens. Right now, we're going to make history. We're going to change how everything is going to look, and we're going to do it right. From the Jordan River to the Middle East, that's all ours. It was promised to us. There's no Palestinian nation. No one wants them. So why we? Because we are good. We finished to be good three weeks ago. I think the bombing is good. I think the, they should have a lot more of the bombing. The bombarding. I think we can do a lot more inside of Gaza. It's a fight between the good and the bad, the good and the evil. The only innocent people that are in Gaza now are the 229 hostages that were taken. Once they will go back to Israel, we will bomb Shifa Hospital, all the hospitals, all the tunnels and kill them all. It's about time. The world knows that. There's no argue about that. We are the center of the world now. You could agree or disagree with them, but understand, where are the peacemakers? Where are those who want peace for the Jewish people and for the Arab people? Where are they? Where are they being interviewed? Where are they in government? Where are they creating policy? Where's the United Nations? Same place it was with Uganda. From WBI, we got to say goodbye. We're going to go to the top of the hour, and I'm going to open up for some calls. Your opportunity to call in and share your points of view, 888-874-4888. 888-874-4888. Lewis Hill founded Pacifica. Later, 
the board of progressives he put in place uh, were so determined to undermine his basic principles, so he created them all as a pacifist, that uh, they threw him out of Pacifica. But he said, we will be a voice for the voiceless. I believe in what he said. And that's why we have a form for the voice, especially those who find themselves in conflict zones but have no voice. They're just victims. And at the end of it, of all the families, they have no place to go. They have no place to hide. If you hide in the basement of a building, the bombs are, the whole building is collapsed. Everyone in the building will die. There are dozens of buildings that no one's been able to go through. So the number of people counted dead now is minimal to the number of people who are waiting to be found under the rubble. They don't have bulldozers, they don't have cranes, they don't have any ambulance, they have nothing. Hospitals are operating on children amputating legs without anesthesia. No big deal. Lindsey Graham, he could care less. Mark Rubio, care less. Wow. Our whole government could care less. And that's where we're at. Maybe you do care. Maybe you have solutions. I'd like to hear them if you do. Got a whole week of good programming coming up next week. Not on these topics. I've done what I can to share my position and give voice to the voiceless. I'm going to take on a lot of other issues next week. And Tuesday night, all about how America is bankrupt. We are the most bankrupt country in the world per population. And yet we live with this myth, this illusion that we're prosperous. Some are. I'll give you the details. And I mean a lot of details. I spent over a month preparing this report. And I'll show you the truth that we are a divided nation. Not just politically, ideologically. But we're, we're a class-based society where so many people give up all their values and integrity to have more of something so they can differentiate themselves from where they came from. What was wrong with where you came from? What's wrong with being a working-class person? Nothing. Oh, yeah. Yeah, because those people, you know, once they become successful with something in any area, they want to gravitate to those other people who are successful. They want to get into that golden circle of the those who are celebrities. I don't see any calls up, so we're going to say goodbye for now, and we're going to turn it over in a minute to the Oracle of Harlem, Jeremiah. He's got a really interesting show waiting for you. I'll see you back here on Monday. Have a nice day.